in God, but not quite the right faith. It wasn't a, oh, we trust in God's power to protect us, and we're going to be faithful to God and obey and listen to him. It was a, no, we have trust that God's going to protect his temple, his dwelling place, no matter what we do in here. We don't have to be faithful. We don't have to obey. God's going to protect the city because there's no way he's going to let his home place fall. And so now we come into the second part of Hezekiah's story. So you can open your Bibles or your biblical apps on your devices to 2 Kings 20, where we're going to pick up uh, Hezekiah's story. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible or your biblical device, we have a biblical slide on the screen with the passage as well. We're reading verses 1 to 7. About that time, Hezekiah became deathly ill, and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to visit him. He gave the king this message. This is what the Lord says. Set your affairs in order, for you are going to die. You will not recover from this illness. When Hezekiah heard this, he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I have always been faithful to you and served you single-mindedly, always doing what pleases you. Then he broke down and wept bitterly. But before Isaiah had left the middle courtyard, this message came to him from the Lord. Go back to Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Tell him this is what the Lord, the God of your ancestor David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you, and three days from now, you will get out of bed and go to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will rescue you in this city from the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my own honor and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, make an ointment from figs. So Hezekiah's servant spread the ointment over the boil, and Hezekiah recovered. So now, uh, Hezekiah, in illness and the need, turns once again to God, just like he did when Assyria was coming, and he prays for aid. And Hezekiah's situation is one that many of us can emphasize with, empathize with. Maybe for our own illnesses or our own bad diagnosis that we've gotten. Maybe for a family member or a loved one who's gotten that illness or diagnosis. But the threat of the life of a loved one to pass too young or the threat of ourselves to pass too young. And perhaps you can picture that moment when you heard that news of your own diagnosis, of a loved one's diagnosis. And perhaps like Hezekiah turned away and he prayed to God and he wept as he did. And while there's similarities in that situation, there is some profound differences between Hezekiah's life-threatening situation and the ones that we find ourselves or our loved ones in as well. And there's two different ways in which it's different. The first can be summarized in the term progressive revelation. And what this means is that God doesn't just drop all theological knowledge into his people in one big data dump. We have the law given to Moses, as shown in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And it's given over a span of at least 40 years of wandering through the desert. Not just Moses sitting on that mountain one time, carving it all into stone tablets, but over that whole period. And throughout the Bible, 1,600 years of composition, of roughly, uh, there's revelations of God throughout that don't all just happen in the beginning, but all throughout the Bible. And so one of these ones, in Hezekiah's case, the revelation that he didn't have, that we now have, is this concept of the afterlife, or the resurrection of the dead. 
The picture of that new Jerusalem that we see in Revelation, he had no idea of this. This wasn't a theological concept yet during Hezekiah's time. It first really appears in Daniel's time, which is late into exile, perhaps even post-exile. So since they didn't have this picture of storing up your treasures in heaven, the way to be blessed for being faithful to God, the reward had to happen in this lifetime. So those rewards would have been being blessed on earth, wealth, having a long life, and having lots of sons so that your name can carry through in the sun. And the concept of death was Sheol, or the grave, which basically, on a very, very basic level, means once you're dead, you're dead. There's no afterlife, there's no coming back, you're gone. And so, for Hezekiah, who is a faithful to God, sees this is not fair that his life is being cut short because the reward had to come in this lifetime. And this leads into his plea and his prayer, which segues us nicely into the second difference, and that's that Hezekiah lives in a different covenant. And a covenant is a relational agreement at its very basic form, It's one party saying, I will do this if you do this. And so we stand in this new covenant brought about by Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And at its very simplified and not at all all all-encompassing form, Jesus says that if we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, follow him with our heart, mind, soul, strength, and obey his teachings then his part is uh, forgiveness of sin, removal of penalty of death for our sin, a close relationship with the living God, the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, etc., etc., etc. And that's the kind of covenant that we stand in now when we start following Jesus or a covenant that's available to you if you haven't started following Jesus yet. But this was not the covenant that Hezekiah was in, he was still in what we now call the Old Covenant, or what the Old Testament calls the Covenant, because it was the only one at the time. The blessings of God's favor, such as long life, lots of kids, earthly blessings, is tied to his own faithfulness to the covenant, to the laws that are summarized throughout Deuteronomy and Exodus and Leviticus. Follow these commandments faithfully and you get the blessings that are laid out in Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 14. All earthly blessings like having good crops, great livestock, peace and security from war, and having prosperity. Disobey the commandments and you get the curses of Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 68, which is twice as long as the blessings you get and is basically just the opposite of all those things and complete destruction and removal from the land that they are promised. And so it is upon this covenant that Hezekiah comes and he prays, remember how I've always been faithful to you and have served you single-mindedly, always doing what pleases you. I've obeyed your commandments. I've sought to serve you and not false gods. I've led the nation into worship of you, getting rid of these false gods. It's not fair that my life is being cut short. That's a curse, not a blessing. And God hears his prayer. And before Isaiah is even able to leave the palace, he is sent back with word that Hezekiah will live another 15 years. 
So for us, we can look at this story and say, if Hezekiah's prayer that's based on his own merits, his own faithfulness, his own work towards following God has that kind of power, then how much power do our prayers that are based upon not our merits or our works, but God's own merits and God's own works in Jesus, how much more powerful are those prayers? And now what that means well, what that doesn't mean is that when we pray for healing in the case of illnesses or relief from suffering, it doesn't mean that that's going to happen. Jesus doesn't promise us freedom from suffering. In fact, he promises us actually quite the opposite. But what he does promise us is to be in the, uh, with us in the midst of our suffering. And sometimes that takes the form of healing and removal of suffering, whether instantly through a miracle or through the wisdom of doctors or the change around of life situations. Sometimes that takes the form of peace during the suffering. And so uh, for us, uh, we're in the midst of this type of illness and this suffering with Caitlin. Two and a half years ago, she was diagnosed with MS. And so at the, the beginning, there is this odd sense of both relief and, and sadness. This relief because before this diagnosis, she was getting numbness in her fingertips, and then it would go away, and then it would come back, and then it started spreading, and soon, at one point, her whole left side was numb. And then the, these other things that seemed not connected. And so we'd go to doctors and they oh, I think it's this, and try to fix it, and I wouldn't fix it. And then something else that's going on, like a vertigo, okay, maybe it's this, let's try this, and it didn't fix it. So eventually we got the, the CAT scan and the diagnosis that she had MS. And so there's this relief, we're like, okay, well, now we know what this is, and everything else that's going on is connected to this. So at least there's an answer. But also the sadness of this diagnosis. And knowing, I remember through that, that first year of walking through that and kind of the fear and the sadness that Caitlin would express. Mike, we have to go traveling now because when I'm older, we're not going to be able to travel. I don't know how long I'm going to be able to work. I might be in the wheelchair when I'm older. These kind of fears that she was expressing. And then there is also the medication that we, she has to take which is a, taking a needle every single day. And, and I remember when the nurse came over to show her how to use the auto-injector. And Caitlin was already nervous about having to poke herself with a needle every day. Uh, I mean, that's not a, a pleasant thing in itself, but I remember when she went to do it, to practice, and she hit the auto-injector and the needle went in and she went, oh, that's not so bad. And then the nurse said, okay, now you're gonna feel a little bit of a burning sensation. She's like, oh, oh, oh as it started going in the medication. And uh, though you might get used to poking yourself with a needle every day, the, the feeling of the medication, which is described as having a bee sting or a hot poker going in, uh, doesn't go away. And so that's a continuing kind of suffering. And so we, we pray over this, and maybe God will answer that prayer in a, in a miracle, and she'll be healed of it because it's not got a cure right now. Uh, maybe God will answer in just kind of maintaining the condition it is now 
Uh, we've seen answers to prayers already. She uh, started this medication. She did switch to just the generic brand, but same kind of medication. And first try, it's been a medication that's been working. Uh, we've had a couple of CAT scans come through and no new little lesions on her brain or, or spine that causes the MS have appeared. So it's been maintained, which is an answer to prayer. And it's amazing that the first medication we've tried have, has worked. So that's one way that God's been answering prayer in that. But that's not a removal of the suffering. And maybe that will continue. Maybe it will continue to degenerate as we get older. But I, I have found that in the midst of that suffering, though God doesn't take it away, that God can give you peace in that. And we've started finding peace. That first year was rough, but I think we're, we're getting into that, I think, as used to category as you can. Um, but he also can fill it with meaning. So God takes Jesus, comes as Jesus, and suffers on the cross, and he fills that with tons of meaning. Sometimes he takes our suffering, the situations we're in or the illnesses that we're in, and he uses it to shape our character into being more like him. Or in this case, I've been able to go to camp at Camp Kakwa and speak for the last two summers. One when this was still pretty fresh, last, uh, not this July, but the last July, and then this last July, and share that story and talk about how suffering doesn't always get removed. And both times, that story of Caitlin's diagnosis and everything that she's going through breaks down the walls for kids and opens their hearts and their ears to Jesus for the rest of the week. As they resonate, they have things that's going on at home. They have suffering that they have. And hearing that, okay, God might not take that suffering away, but he can use it, or he's with me in that, just breaks down the walls. And God moves through a powerful way in that. And that's, again, the power of prayer there. As we come back to the story, the story then decides to jump back a little bit before Hezekiah was healed. To give another contrast between Hezekiah and his father Ahaz in verses 8 to 11. Meanwhile, Hezekiah had said to Isaiah, What sign will the Lord give to prove that he will heal me and that I will go to the temple of the Lord three days from now? Isaiah replied, This is the sign from the Lord to prove that he will do as he promised. Would you like the shadow on the sundial to go forward ten steps or backward ten steps? The shadow always moves forward, Hezekiah replied, so that would be easy. Make it go ten steps backward instead. So Isaiah the prophet asked the Lord to do this, and he caused the shadow to move ten steps backward on the sundial of Ahaz. Ahaz refuses to ask God for a sign when it's offered to him. And Hezekiah comes and he asks for a sign. to confirm his trust in God's faithfulness. And so God causes the shadow on the sundial to go backwards. And it's on Ahaz's sundial, uh, which is um, different. It's not the little like circle with the, I don't know what the technical term is, up jutting thing. I'm pretty sure that is the technical term, up jutting thing. Uh, that shows the time on the sundial. Uh, it's steps that, I think I have a picture of it, the steps that um, his father Ahaz actually probably installed on the temple uh, in the form of worship to some pagan god. Uh, and so they have the wall there that brought the shadow and 
where the shadow was on the steps, each step had a marker of time. And so when he says go back 10 steps, he means literally back 10 steps of stairs. And so God does this, a fitting sign, because Hezekiah is giving more time, and time goes backwards in this miracle. And even though there's a commandment that says not to put the Lord your God to the test, God comes to Ahaz through the prophet and says, put me to the test. Let me show you that you can trust me. Let me show you how much I love you and how much I care for you to do whatever sign you ask. And Ahaz refuses. And Hezekiah comes and he puts the Lord to the test without any prompting. He says, I need a sign. And instead of condemning him, God comes and says, yes, because I want to show you that you can trust me. I want to build your faith more. I want to show you how much I love you. I want to show you how much I care for you. So I'm going to do this sign for you. And so we see Hezekiah gets healed and he has faith. He comes to God in the midst of his trouble and prays. And God answers his prayer in the form of healing him. And then we move into the last part of Hezekiah's story, starting in verses 12 and 13. This is where it gets fun, because there's fun Babylonian name to say. Soon after this, Merodach Baladan, that's actually not too bad of a one to say. Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah his best wishes and a gift. For he had heard that Hezekiah had been very sick. Hezekiah received the Babylonian envoys and showed them everything in his treasure houses, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the aromatic oils. He also took them to see his armory and showed them everything in his royal treasuries. There is nothing in his palace or kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Hezekiah's recovery from illness was the perfect excuse that Babylon needed to come pay Hezekiah a visit. And it wasn't just to wish him well on his illness because they are world leaders. And so when world leaders visit, the matter is politics. And so what's happening is actually that there is a a power shift in the ancient world that is happening. Assyria is a superpower, but Assyria is growing weaker. Their vast military expansion was becoming too large for them to be able to handle. By this point, they had conquered all the way down to Thebes in Egypt. The largest piece of land and empire is owned up to this point. And they were having trouble controlling it. Babylon was a nation under Assyria, much like Judah was at this point. But Babylon was gaining in power. They were really visiting Judah to get King Hezekiah, the king who somehow... When the Assyrians came and surrounded his city, were able to battle them off and make them go away. To join them in overthrowing the superpower Assyria. So commentator David Guizik says this, We can imagine that this was a flattering moment for King Hezekiah. After all, Judah was a lowly nation with little power, and Babylon was a junior superpower. To receive this notice and recognition from the king of Babylon must have really made Hezekiah feel important. And so Hezekiah wants to show off everything he has to prove that he's a worthwhile ally to Babylon. He holds a show and tell of everything he owns to the Babylonians. He comes to his kindergarten class with sacks and sacks of stuff to show off. And in his flattered state, he starts to believe that he is the one 
who overcame those powerful Assyrians. He is the one who overcame this illness that threatened his life. He is the one who has accumulated this armory and this wealth. And as the Babylons prod and poke his ego, he forgets that it was God who miraculously delivered him from the Assyrians. It was God who gave him 15 extra years on earth. It was God who provided for him. Hezekiah's pride overtakes and he misses the golden opportunity he has. God chose Israel as a nation to make, create a people that would follow him, that would live in the ways that God had ordered the world and through that be a light to all the other nations on earth that they would see that and they would come and they would worship God. And so Hezekiah has the prime opportunity to do this. Babylon has come to see him because he was sick and now he's well and because he had somehow defeated the Assyrians. And now is the time that Hezekiah can say, oh, our God of Israel, he's the one who got rid of the Assyrians. He's the one who's healed me. He's the one who's blessed me with all these things because I've been faithful in worship to him and rejected all these other gods. But he doesn't say that. He says, come and look at all my armory and my treasury. Look how much I have. Look how great I am. Be my ally. Yes, we defeated the Assyrians. Yes, I was sick and I got well. And now Isaiah sees the Babylonian envoys leaving and it comes to Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20, 14 to 19. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked him, why did those men, what, no, what did those men want? Where were they from? Hezekiah replied, they came from the distant land of Babylon. What did they see in your palace? Hezekiah asked. They saw everything, Hezekiah replied. I showed them everything I own, all my royal treasuries. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen to this message from the Lord. The time is coming when everything in your palace, all the treasures stored up by your ancestors until now, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own sons will be taken away into exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve in the palace of, the Babylon, of Babylon's king. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, This message you have given me from the Lord is good. For the king was thinking, At least there will be peace and security during my lifetime. Isaiah had prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah and Jotham. Both were considered good kings, according to 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And then he also served under the, king, uh, under the reign of King Ahaz, who is considered one of the worst kings of Judah. And during that reign, he's the one who prophesied that a child is going to be born named Emmanuel, who's going to deliver the people and guide them into faithfulness to God. And while that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, uh, Isaiah had in mind Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah did pro uh, partially fulfill it. He beat back the Assyrians, though really that was God. But he did lead the people in faithful worship of Yahweh, of Israel's God. But ultimately, Isaiah becomes disappointed in Hezekiah. He was expecting so much more. He was expecting someone like Hezekiah's ancestor, King David, who brought in a golden age for Israel and, uh, and faithful worship of God. But now with Babylon, he sees shades of his father Ahaz. 
Rather than bringing glory to God, Hezekiah swells with pride, takes credit for all he has, and begins to trust in Babylon rather than God. And the statement of judgment that Isaiah brings is actually really just a statement of reality. Hezekiah has been prideful and boastful, showing off everything he has to the Babylonians, and God has blessed him with these things. And so it's only natural that Babylon's going to come and see it, and he's, they're going to want those blessings. Hezekiah decided to trust in Babylon to overthrow these Assyrians that keep threatening him. Threatening him. But Babylon is just like all the other nations. They want power. There's going to be a time where they'll be just like Assyria to to Judah. They will seek to gain more and more land and more and more power. God is just stating the reality of the time that they're living in. And now with the prophecy of Isaiah, we see differing interpretations within the text. Hezekiah himself is relieved by the prophecy, calling it good, because it was going to come past with his children and not with him, not within his extra 15 years that he was given. Kind of selfish of him. Oh, good, I won't have to go into exile. It's my sons who have to deal with that. And then there's the interpretation of those who have compiled the books of First and Second Kings, which most scholars place actually during the time of the Babylonian exile, when they took these pieces of history that have been written down and compiled them into the books that we have now. And commentator William Barnes says, Hezekiah's seemingly short-sighted neglect of the future only grows deeper in incomprehensibility in the light of the horrors of the eventual exile to Babylonia. But that must have been the author's point. Present-day acquiescence will lead to future disaster. Hezekiah's interpretation is an example of the problem the books of 1 and 2 Kings are trying to point out. Those who were bad kings and even those who were good kings were only concerned about their hold onto power. Pride is thinking too much about yourself. And these kings were prideful. King Jehu carried out God's judgment against King Ahab's family because it gave him sole control over the throne of Israel, not because he wanted to be faithful to God necessarily. Joash took the sacred items of God to pay off Aram to save his own power. Ahaz refused to trust with God to deal with that Israel-Syrian alliance, instead trusted in the tangible power of Assyria to protect his power. And now Hezekiah begins to do the same thing with Babylon, trusting in Babylon to keep himself safe from Assyria. These kings' short-sighted pride, thinking of their only, only of their own welfare over that of the nation as a whole, leads into the long-term suffering of exile. And so coming out of this story, what we must do is examine ourselves See where we have been prideful. What good things have we taken for granted in life? What things in our life have we claimed to be caused by our own success when they were provided by God's generosity? And once we identify those things, let us come to God and repent of those attitudes. And let us put into practice things to help combat against our pride. Pride something that I continually fight. I can get wrapped up in my own head, in my own situations. And lately that's looked like thinking that everything is against me. 
I can view everything in, as awful and, and God-forsaken. And this isn't in a mental health depression sort of way. This is my own choice in my head that I'm making, my own attitude. Mental health is a different category than this. This is my own choice of prideful mentality, whether subconscious or conscious. And so I've been starting to put into practice something to help try to combat that attitude in my life by practicing the examine in the evenings, which is this ancient practice. If you look back and reflect on your day, finding the moments that make me happy, the moments that were good things, the moments that I'm thankful for the day, the moments that I saw God move, whether good or not, no, always good, whether, <laughs> whether uh, large or small. And as I remember that moment, I thank God for that moment and spend time in prayer reflecting and thanking God. And it helps start to remove my attitude from pride of thinking that everything's awful and bad in life right now and seeing, oh no, there's lots of good things that God's doing. Moving my attitude thinking, oh, God's not moving in this area to, oh yeah, that's where God's moving in this area. Move my attitude from pride into gratitude instead. I start seeing that God has given me good every day and he keeps me from, keep, from claiming those good things as my own and seeing them as they're part of God's generous um, blessings. And so as Tammy and the team come and lead us in worship, we're going to enter into a time of praise and reflection. Where have we been prideful? Where have we ignored God and thought only of ourselves? Maybe that's an attitude that is rooted in us right now. Let's take those things to God in prayer. If Hezekiah, under a covenant based on his own merit, and his prayers had such power, I want to try not to take your music with me. There we go. Such power, then how much do our prayers under this new covenant that's based on Jesus' work for us instead of our own work, how much more power does that have? We have God's spirit dwelling inside us, as Tammy said, in the welcome, the power that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells inside of us and wants to transform us. It can transform our attitudes that we have. It can transform the situations we find ourselves in. So there are going to be prayer response team members at the back that are willing to come alongside you and, and pray with you. And if you need prayer this morning, please do not leave without it. Or perhaps during these songs, you want to spend time thanking God for the things he has done. And so now we're going to enter into time.